I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello again and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I know this show has been downloaded in over 150 countries around the world. These really are global conversations that we're having and to have such a wide range of guests who are creative and inspirational but also bringing incredible insights for for everyone listening I think is just a real, it's a privilege for me and, and I really thank you for spending some time here. Now today I'm chatting to Angela Brown and she's a former education leader, director of a coaching and consultancy company and founder of Haven, an online space for women. She provides transformational leadership coaching, personal development programs and luminary diversity, equity and inclusion consulting to organisations that are in deep and sustainable change. Angela is a researcher in the field of diversity, equity and inclusion and has taken a PhD within the Centre for Race Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University. Her book, Lighting the Way, The Case for Ethical Leadership in Schools, published by Bloomsbury, brings her passion for ethical leadership to life. I really love these conversations for people who've had many different experiences within and around education. So I really hope you find this interesting, my conversation with Angie Brown. Hi, Angie. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. We're all about sort of inspiration and creativity and blazing the way. And I guess there's nothing more blazing the way than lighting the way which is the title of your book so um let, let's start there where was the where is the um the idea for that and how did that all develop oh thank you thanks mark for inviting me here so uh, lighting the way as a an idea has always just really appealed to me and i read a fantastic book on leadership and on how we can create organizations that people want to stay in by um a woman called nancy duarte And she used this term, lighting the way. She described leaders as being people who patrol the border between now and what has been. And it really excited me, the idea that actually we could be doing more than just taking people in the direction that the organisation had set out. But we could be lighting the way towards something completely different. And we might not know what that different is. And I guess I became really motivated to start to write about what lighting the way might look like when I found myself in my third headship and found myself in the familiar territory of working in a school system that seemed to be such a challenge to work in. It felt as though as a leader and as a teacher, every single day presented a brand new challenge. And and actually leadership had become more about navigating challenges and never quite getting to the destination that we'd set out. So the idea of working out what it would mean to light the way towards a different model of school leadership started to 
gain momentum, I guess, in my in my brain. And for a for a, a, a variety of reasons, I uh, started penning this book kind of in secret ideas around what it would look like to, to, to have a different school system, to lead differently for our schools to operate differently. And um, so, yeah, I guess that's the genesis of, of the book. So just take us into a few of those sort of thoughts in the, and, and those insights to there, because I'm sure there are lots of people feeling exactly that same kind of restriction and feeling like it must be easier. Surely, you know, we're sort of creating an environment for people to thrive. But as soon as you feel that's not the case, then what, you know, like say, what can we do to change it? Mm. So so one of the things that I, I would say is is hugely important to me is that we acknowledge where we are. And so the first few chapters of Lighting the Way actually were quite sobering for me to write because I was actually writing about the context in which I'd been working, we'd all been working for a number of years without ever having formally acknowledged it or articulated it. So actually writing down that we had been working through this period of austerity really helped contextualise the pressure that we were all feeling. And I think there's something to be said for just acknowledging the moment in time that we're at in schools that stops us from gaslighting ourselves in a way, that sense that we should be doing better. Surely, you know, there must be something wrong with me if I can't lead through this. There must be something wrong with me if I can't manage my classroom or why haven't I got control of behavior in my room? All of those things are kind of self attacks really that teachers take on, that leaders take on. And so for me, the first thing to do is to acknowledge where we are in space and time. At the moment, I'm working with schools that have been through the most incredibly challenging two years. And for them to voice the impact of the pandemic, the impact of that on themselves as human beings, as well as on their classrooms, the impact of home learning, the impact of being taken away from your colleagues and your peers for long periods of time and not having that face to face and that contact with individuals. For people to voice that is to begin to forgive themselves sometimes this feeling of not being good enough and not being able to cope. So that that for me is always the starting point is where are we now and why might we be feeling the way that we're feeling and normalizing that. I think the second thing that I noticed when I was um, a school leader was that not much of an opportunity was taken in formal leadership development training to really explore the kind of leader that we might want to be. So I was given a lot of guidance and support and training around what somebody else had decided would make a good leader. There's lots out there about the things that you must do if you want to be a good leader. There's a lot of information about the, you know, don't smile before Christmas and all of those kinds of things (laughs) drifting around there in the ethers. And that's all well and good. And some of those ideas, you know, have a place for sure. But the time taken to really reflect on how you as a human being interact with the organisation that you are attempting to lead or the team that you're attempting to lead, those opportunities are really rare. So I write in the book about the starting point of leadership being an internal inquiry and much less of an external inquiry into the school that you're leading initially, an internal inquiry into how your values have shaped you as a human being, into how your childhood has shaped how you show up, into what kinds of things will be important to you 
into what would happen if any of those values were compromised or breached in the workplace. Because it isn't until we've done that inquiry and until we know the kind of leader that we are, that we're able to really stand firm in these incredibly rough seas that we're in, in these really challenging times. And to recognise that that person might want me to take that behaviour, but I'm I'm never going to be the kind of person that's going to behave in that way because it's just not true to me. It's not true to my values. So the second place I go is, um, and I think it's quite a tangible place, is literally asking leaders to articulate their own values. And if they haven't already done this, to begin to formulate a moral, ethical framework, if you like, for their own behaviour and almost run through a variety of scenarios, run scenarios through that framework. What would happen if a parent came into school and said that uh, a teacher had um, unfairly disadvantaged their child? How would I handle that situation? What would the impact of that be if I look at that through the lens of my personal moral framework? What would I do for that teacher? What would I do for that parent? What would I do for that child? I invite people to do this because what I see in schools is a, a lack of autonomy that perhaps has come as a consequence of high stakes accountability, perhaps has come as a consequence of successive governments having a very clear idea of what people should be doing in schools. And the impact of a lack of autonomy is that people run around not really knowing and often waiting to be told what to do next. And actually, it's really bad for our health to feel as though solutions are outside of ourselves. And so for leaders, for teachers, for anyone who is working in an organisation in which they are in front of children, I really encourage them to build a sense of self first, do that internal inquiry into who they really are and how that is going to shape the way that they show up in their organisations. I really love that. And um, I think that kind of acceptance and, and also, like I say, maybe the penning down or voicing where you are is really, really key, isn't it? Because, you know, life is seasons in many different ways. And I think currently in the education system, like I say, we've had a long time of austerity. We've had a certain way of education being through the national curriculum. And we sort of forget that that does change over time. But we sort of feel like we're, we're sort of very much in there. And also we sort of liken it to the... um to the person that's had um, broken their leg for example they're sort of you know they're an athlete they're expecting that in a month's time they were going to be their best self and win a win the first prize in, in, in an event and then they break their leg and then it's that kind of well my life doesn't look like that anymore I can't actually yeah. achieve what I thought it was going to be but then it's about what do I do now how do I reframe that how do I get back into a position where I can do it at a later time and it does seem to me that with an education we don't have that acceptance of anything, like you said, about where we are. It's all about the fact that no matter what happens, whether it's um, you know outside of our our remit in terms of a, a pandemic completely changing anything or the national curriculum or Alstead or whatever it happens to be, that actually no matter whatever happens, it still has to look a certain way or we still have mm. to achieve this goal or, or hit this level of something. Mm. Um, and, and I think what you said there is, is really powerful from that point of view. And I'm really interested to know that when you sort of do that internal work in terms of your values and how you see that kind of thing, how do you then help people frame that into the world that they must have previously seen? Is the fact, like you say, it's, everything's out there and it has to be a certain way based on those external factors? 
Mm, that's a really good question. I think that um, just I'm just going to go back to what you said about seasons, actually, in order to answer this. I think sometimes the outcome of that internal inquiry can be that we're not necessarily in a school context that allows us to realise some of the behaviours or uh, make manifest some of the values that we then discover are really important to us. And I often meet leaders at that point because the moment that people seek coaching, for example, is often when they've realised that there's some divergence between who they really are and where they're really working. And we do that inquiry and then they realise, oh, these were always my values and I went into an organisation that possibly doesn't share my values and I've been fighting against a system in which I'm never really going to be able to lead with my values at the forefront because they're just not the ones that are important within the organisation. And that doesn't make the organisation's values or ambitions bad or wrong or that person's values or ambitions bad or wrong, but it does make for a misalignment. And so at that point, I think the question becomes, having acknowledged that, are you the kind of person that is prepared to, at this point, in this season of your leadership career or this season of your teaching career, to take the hit, to say, actually, I acknowledge that I maybe feel, I maybe will feel some misalignment for the next year or 18 months, but that being said, I'm really clear on the organization's approach and way, and I'm going to fall in step with that. Or is the discomfort such that actually it's time to begin to look for a better fit? And I think this is really important because I think we mistake our discomfort for the organization being at fault. And often it's it, that in that misalignment, no one is really to blame, but the exploration, the internal exploration and possibly the articulation of where the organisation is haven't been rigorous enough. And organisations, particularly schools, I think, go through very clear seasons. And as teachers and leaders, we need to demonstrate autonomy right from the first interaction with schools, organisations. We need to ask questions like, what season is this organisation in? Is it an RI school that's about to be inspected that is going to need a high level of accountability, that's going to need for people to feel high levels of safety about what's going on in the classroom that may mean that I will not have as much autonomy as I really value when I work you know, under normal circumstances. And if that's the case, does that create a misalignment for me and my values? Will that create misalignment for me in the way that I like to show up? And if we don't take the opportunity to do the inner work and then we don't take the opportunity to really assess whether the organisation we're going into is aligned with us, I actually think it's on us a little bit. So there are occasions when um, we find ourselves out of step with, with wherever we are. And there are always then opportunities to find ourselves in organisations that better allow us to make that um, bring ourselves to the organisation. That's what I'm really behind is I want to create schools. I want to create opportunities. I want to offer leaders the opportunity to bring their full selves to wherever they are 
but it does require you to be really open to where the organization is what season it's in and I've seen people and supported people through that transition into places that are just a much better fit for them that are just more aligned because that particular organization is at a different time in its evolution and is ready to have leaders who embrace the values that they want to bring does that make sense Mark yeah absolutely and and I think it's that it's almost a little bit like the sense of when parents are going around to look at a school you know that there's sort of the there's the, the headlines you know there's the we do this we do that we do all that sort of thing but there's actually uh, an atmosphere and a feeling that you get which is quite hard to pinpoint but you know it kind of fits with you in whichever way that happens to be and um yeah. and like you said I would imagine in, in the way that you're talking there are some practical things like you say and your relationship with the with the SLT or whatever where you think no I can see where they're going and what they're doing but also the fact that you might even think no I kind of like what they're trying to do but I don't think the personalities or the way that we're going to be working is going to be a fit as well so it suddenly gets even more of a gray area I guess mm, yeah yeah and, and I think it's one that we we can we can muddle on through so so this is never I actually find these explorations are really helpful in finding stability I know when I was teaching I had a tendency when I was a teacher in the classroom I had a tendency to want to if it's not immediately great then I've got to get out I mean that's my tendency in life anyway but but just we're just recognizing my part in it what isn't great about it for me oh yeah okay it's not it's not just because the school's a terrible place it's because the school wants these things and I'm actually more about these things I think that can bring a level of peace that can enable you to see out a full year if, you know, you're having those thoughts at some point in the school year. And I know lots of people are at the moment. And I think the same way about 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 leadership. I think it's never it's never as 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 productive to move on from an organization thinking it was all them. It was nothing to do with me. I just need to find somewhere where it's better for me. Actually, there's great learning about self that can be done when we can sit with this doesn't work for me what are the reasons for that what is it about me and what I bring that mean I can't work in this environment and what it's about (laughs) because then we have intelligence to move forward we have the kind of data that we need to say I need to ask the following questions of my next organization because this is what I know to be true about myself when I find myself in this kind of organization and it's amazing how you often find yourself in the same type of organization when you move as well isn't it because you kind of just for whatever that is you bring it to you or you see it in the same way you say the same things you show up in the same way in the grass is always greener except it just isn't or or doesn't change like that um I'm really interested in, in terms of your sort of, you know, your coaching and, and, and all of the things that you do from a consulting point of view. Do you think there should be more initial training for, for people in leadership, um, especially through schools? Because it seems to me that it's very easy to, not very easy, that's not, not obviously not the right phrase, but you, you go into the profession and you teach and you suddenly have this career path that sort of opens up and ahead of you should you want to take it. But it's very much a kind of a, a path which just sort of happens. And I'm not sure how much of the sorts of things that you're talking about, which seem to be so integral to be a good leader, actually are a part of what you would normally do if you don't come across, like you say, having that exploration of yourself or, or feeling like you're struggling and looking outside. Mm. I, I love this question because I really strongly believe 
that leadership development does not prepare people to be leaders. I think that we have a um, we have a black hole almost in education that will never be filled by the numbers of brilliant and hardworking people that there are that throw themselves into it. It sucks in people who are good workers and who want to do good things, but it doesn't teach them how to retain themselves in that. And that for me is what good leadership is all about. So in order to light the way, in order to say, hey, there's a there's a path down there. I think this might this this path might be one that we could go down. You have to be able to keep a sense of yourself. You have to be able to look after yourself. I, I really do not like the oxygen mask thing <laughs> analogy because it's so overused. But there is something for me that's really important about leadership development, teaching people how to manage themselves, lead themselves before they try to manage and lead other people. Because if you can't do that, you actually have no business leading anybody else. It's it's going to fail from the off. And I, I, I like to say you cannot manage what you cannot manage. And I think that if leadership development took that approach, looked at all of the things that we are going to have to manage, and then invited leaders to try and self-manage those, taught the actual skills of managing those things, we would have a much better prepared workforce. Let me give some examples of that. We have um, leaders in schools, or certainly I work with the with the consequences of leaders in schools who have been ill-prepared to manage difficult situations, so have low levels of tolerance towards, for example, the distress of other people. Over the last two years, we have seen the distress of other people in schools skyrocket. So we have staff, let's just focus on staff. We have staff coming into schools who, people of colour, who witnessed on their screens the murder, the killing of George Floyd, and had very visceral responses to how institutions managed or didn't manage race. We have leaders who then don't know how to manage that distress, who don't have the skills, the human skills sometimes, but really I think the leadership skills, who feel at sea with managing the heavy emotions that are coming from those people. We see on our screens the fallout of the murder of Sarah Everard. We have huge numbers of our workforce dealing with what can be the very painful realisations of what it is to be a woman in modern day British society. We have leaders in our schools who don't know how to handle those conversations, who are ill-equipped to manage the heavy emotions that come from that. And then we add a pandemic onto the top of it. We have people trying to manage their mental health, trying to manage their physical health, dealing with death and illness in their families, coming into schools and being faced by leaders who haven't been given the tools to manage those heavy and difficult emotions. I think it's a real failure on the part of leadership development that those people are put in those positions to try and manage those things on their own. And yet, there they are. And simple tools like leaders having to exercise around how do you manage your own emotions? How do you deal with pain? How have you dealt with loss in your own life? 
What is your response when this happens? Asking leaders through that kind of intense and intimate, if you like, leadership development, how they manage themselves, supporting them in that internal work, gives them the vital lens that they need into how they might work with others through those things. And I think without that, we create organisations that have no heart because they can't have a heart unless we can deal with what the people in our organizations are bringing to us. So I absolutely agree that people should have leadership development training that supports them more effectively in some of the fundamentals around leadership, because it is not just how you manage a building. It is not how you manage resources. Leadership is about how you take people from one reality towards another one and they don't just feel like they want to follow you they trust you enough to go that uncharted road they trust you enough to follow you down the road less traveled and I think sometimes you sort of hear the phrase that you sort of have fearless schools and fearless leaders and and I think that can be interpreted in different ways sometimes but I think it's for me it's it's certainly the things that you're talking about it's the fact that you're creating an atmosphere, you're leading, you're setting the environment of your school, which you know is based on your values and what you believe to be right, and allowing the results, in inverted commas, whether that's from an academic point of view or an artistic point of view, or however you want to describe it, to happen because of what you're putting in place, because of those foundations, because of the the, the ethos of what you want your school or your organisation to be. Um but I guess as time goes on and more and more people going into leadership haven't experienced that because, like you say, we've had sort of successive years and governments that have been um, focused on a slightly different way of, of approaching education. Um, like I said, if you don't have this leadership education going on as well, how do you see that changing until, like you say, you see the people that are having their own inquiry and then coming to someone like you and can then, and then explore it? Is, is there a natural way out of this kind of... Um, I guess, sort of merry-go-round that we seem to be on? I think things are changing. And I've noticed that um, I was working with a group of, of CEOs of trusts a few months ago. And I was noticing in the language that that, that group were using, there were CEOs and, and other executive leaders, I was noticing that there is there has been a shift towards um, much more wholehearted language I know this is a small indicator, but the pandemic certainly threw up a lot for people. I think people who are CEOs, who are executive leaders, who are heads, who are who who haven't necessarily had to confront some of the things that came up out of the pandemic, were suddenly having to face big, big, big emotional um, tidal waves. And I am noticing that there is a shift towards what might be valued now from leaders. I think things are going to look very different over coming years because I think that withstanding the last two years has required a different kind of human leadership. It's not necessarily something that's been taught, but it is something that we notice now has been required. And the attrition rates may or may not be higher for people who have been unable to tolerate some of what the last couple of years have brought into schools. And that is usually where we start to see changes then at policy level and I feel like the last two years will, I am confident, I am hopeful that the last two <laughs> years will influence the kind of leadership development that we see. 
because if only referencing a moment in time, space must be given in some of that training for the context that we've been leading through. And even, the, you know, just thinking about not, not just leadership qualifications, but teacher training, um, thinking about early career teachers, their space will need to be made to accommodate what people have been going through over the last two years. And even that simple inquiry, I think, will start to open up new channels of understanding and recognition of the kinds of things that perhaps we need to start valuing in leadership and in, in education for educators um, that we haven't necessarily been valuing over the last few years. And I guess when the unimaginable happens, then like say you have to ask those questions because you can't you can't put it out of your mind that something else which is unimaginable may be just round the corner. So therefore, like say, are we prepared? Do we know? Have we had these conversations? And um, um, and I'm interested. I mean, you've had the experience in terms of teacher and and head and and CEO of a trust. So so talk us through a little bit about that journey and and how exactly you think that experience is now helping you both in terms of the consulting but also the work that you're doing you know in terms of equity and diversity and, and the work in that area mm. so um I was uh, I was deputy CEO actually I was I was a deputy CEO I, I never became a CEO um but I was really interested in leadership and I've led across a lot of different settings and I think that's really been the best thing I've ever done at the time I thought oh, is it a bit strange because I've hopped from inner city school where I was an English teacher into managing provision for children who had additional needs, into managing the pupil referral service, into being a head teacher of a, a state-funded Steiner school, into being a head teacher of a mainstream secondary school. So I've really done a kind of range of different kinds of roles. But that, um, that smorgasbord of leadership opportunities has, has has been brilliant because I see through so many different lenses. I've overseen provision for, for children all the way from four to 18, and it's very different. And it, it's, it, it, it enables me, it allows me to have a, a, a degree of empathy, I think, for people at different uh, moments in their career but also in different phases and the impact of education policy the impact of context of what's going on in the world is very different for different people in different settings and at different phases so I really use that insight that I have and that lens that I have to um, to bring something to my work that I think is is um, is can be quite helpful it's, it's also quite reassuring I think for colleagues that I work with for them to know that I've had those different experiences because there's always somebody sitting there thinking oh this person who are they you know where they come from they probably don't know what it's like for me and it's not that I have had experience of everything but certainly it is that the experience of lots of different settings reminds me that you can't make assumptions about anyone's experience in, in particularly in our UK education system which is so varied yeah and that's that's really true isn't it and I think again it's a little bit like accepting whatever circumstance you're in or any situation that you're in because you know a very small rural school has a very different chance of educating in the same way as an inner city school whether that's just the sheer numbers the diversity the fact that you have access to resources or museums or theatres or you know or 
whatever you have to do, you have to think of it through the lens of where you are and what you're then trying to achieve. And then we're back to that same conversation about how you want your leadership to be and how you want to put the environment together and, yeah. and all of that kind of thing. And we're back and we're back to season as well. You know, as, as you say, I'm working with a small school in Derbyshire at the moment. The season that they're in, their approach to diversity, equity, inclusion, where they are on that journey is really very different from a school that I'm working with in North London, a massive secondary school in North London. Of course it is, because it's a completely different context and they are in different times and they've had to respond to contexts in very different ways. So I can't ever approach my work as a, really, you're only here? I can't believe it. There are other schools down the road that are much further ahead than you are. That's that's not helpful to anyone. So my approach to the work is tell me where you are. Great that you're starting the journey. So this is the current reality and where are we lighting the way towards next? Yeah, and I think... I think for me, going back to that kind of internal um, inquiry, both from a personal point of view, or like I say, from an organisational point of view, that means that no matter where you are, you're on the journey of, of that awareness or enlightenment or whatever it happens to be. And so it doesn't matter what situation you're in today, that's still part of your journey or your leadership role or whatever it happens to be, even if that's different next year or the year after or in 10 years, it's still a progressive one. It's still a positive one. And you're going to be able to bring that to whichever setting you happen to be. And that I think then starts to feel like a very positive thing, which changes the education system for the better, literally from the inside out, which I think is, is the only way these things really make a big difference. Absolutely. So, Let's just put it into context in terms of, like, say you've had lots of these experiences from a professional point of view, but from from an educational point of view when you were much younger, is there a teacher or an experience which you remember and had a big impact on you, and why was that? So I was, I, I was reflecting the other day on those teachers that I really liked. I'm terrible with names, so I would never remember the name of, of anyone, but I do remember the name of a teacher who, who a primary school teacher I had, um, when, when I lived in London, Mr. Hunt. And the profound effect sounds really small, but he talked to my parents one day when he was uh, when they were picking me up from school. And it must have been the end of term and they were saying, oh, we're going away to North Wales for half term. And he said, oh, I'm going to North Wales as well. We, you know, we have a holiday cottage there or something. And he said, oh, you should come and see us. And so my, it was, you know, we're talking the seven. I think it's not allowed now, probably, but this is the 80s. So, you know, <laughs> all was well. Um, so we we met up with him and his family. My family met with him and his family in North Wales in this holiday cottage. And I remember so clearly sitting outside the cottage and looking out was somewhere in the mountains and looking out over this view and this profound sense of well-being of my parents talking to him in a in a context outside of school. And it really changed everything because when I went back to school, I knew that he knew me and my family outside of school, that there was a different definition of me that had been allowed in that moment, in that day or whatever it was of interaction that we'd had outside of school. So I think it's always been really important to me in my school career to be seen beyond what the teachers would have made of what was happening in the classroom. And, and I reflect on how important that is for children when they see you outside of school, how much it means to them for you to have a chat with their mum or for you to see them 
you know, ice skating or for you to see them in the spa or what not not SPA, SPAR. Um, <laughs> um, and and a similar thing actually in secondary school, I had a teacher who was our environmental studies teacher, but he also led 10 tours, which is something we used to do down in Devon. I don't know if we do it elsewhere. Um it's it's kind of like Duke of Edinburgh Awards. Um and he and so he used to see us every couple of weeks groups of us he would lead lead the lead the walking and and we would have conversations that were nothing to do with school with him um and yeah so that's always really meant a lot to me i really love that because the um the supermarket scenario is just hilarious isn't it because i've i've sort of had those conversations where my kids have seen their their teachers in a supermarket and it's like they can't imagine that they even eat or that they have a life outside of the classroom (laughs) I mean, I used to live next to, and the reason I said spa is because I used to live next to the SPAR spa and uh, the children, lots of in the community that I worked in. And children could often not even look at me because they were so interested in what I was buying that they would say, hello, and they would be sweet. They wouldn't be able to give me eye contact because they were craning their necks to see what was in my basket. (laughs) So life outside of school. (laughs) Yeah, it was biscuits. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and what piece of advice were you ever given that has really made a big difference to you? And I think probably specifically in terms of sort of the educational context, or is there a piece of advice that you'd look back now that you might give your your younger self? So the piece of advice that I was given was um, given to me by Mrs. Atwood, who is an assistant head teacher at the school that I got my first leadership role in. And she said she was in charge of behavior and she said she was a big believer in certainty not severity and she said they're not leaving the country Angie because we always have this like we need to get hold of this child now and deal with the situation and otherwise like it's all over and you know this kind of approach to managing schools that's a little bit frenetic that's a bit panicky that if we don't deal with every single tiny thing in the moment that something's going to be lost there's a real lesson in humility as well that as a teacher if you really want to be an adult worthy of imitation you can just be responsible for your emotions you can contain yourself until tomorrow the child isn't leaving the country they are probably not even leaving the local area overnight so tomorrow when they come into school you can calmly go and see them and say we just need to have a chat about what happened at the end of English yesterday and all will be well and that's how you create dignity and that's how you create gravitas and that's how you have an impact so she changed my whole my whole approach to managing behavior and in fact as a consequence of that I went on to specifically manage behavior settings you know to manage a pro and to and to specialize effectively in supporting young people who had additional needs particularly social emotional and behavioral difficulties I love that and like you say just seeing that piece of advice you know I can imagine that actually happening and and it just like I say that comes down to great leadership again isn't it is that kind of sharing the wisdom not just something I need to remember but something which profoundly makes you think oh yeah that makes a lot of sense and then you take that and you apply it to all the different situations that you're in then yeah yeah, incredible advice um 
is there a, a resource that you'd like to share? And this can be anything from a podcast, a book, a film, a video, anything, but something which is sort of has an impact that you think, yeah, that's something I go back to or something which yeah. really kind of sort of triggered something in me, which um is, is really personal. Mm. So I do have a podcast that I love to recommend, or a, she's a coach, a coach called Brooke Castillo. And she has a podcast called the Life Coach School Podcast. And I've been listening to it for years now. Um, I can't remember exactly when she started it, but it was many, 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 many moons ago. And, and I invite people I'm coaching to go back to listen to some of the earlier episodes, so five, six years ago, maybe more than the, the more recent ones, just because her focus is on self-coaching in the early ones. And that's, that's the basis of her approach to coaching. Brooke Castillo's work is drawn from the work of Byron Katie. So you could also go right back to the source. But effectively, the message in this work is that you are responsible for the results that you create in the world. And your thoughts create your feelings, create your actions, create your results. It sounds really simple. But many of us think, and particularly when we work in education, that circumstances create our feelings. That child was really badly behaved means that I feel this way. This school is, you know, sending me 75,000 emails every evening. That's why I feel this way. Actually, it's our thoughts about the emails that make us feel that way. It's not the emails themselves. The emails are neutral. And I cannot tell you how profound an impact knowing that I could be responsible for my thoughts have been, has been on everything but for educators in particular, getting control of our thoughts and understanding that we can decide the kinds of thoughts that we have, I think is just so, so helpful because I have not met a profession that thinks more about and overthinks and has reason to think a lot about the circumstances because the circumstances come thick and fast. So, yeah, getting control of our mind, I think, is the best mental health advice I can offer yeah I love that and I also think that kind of leading by example and mentorship in a way that is unsaid and unseen in so many ways because you understanding that and showing up in the classroom or an environment being like that shines a light on something which people may not be able to put their finger on necessarily but they get something from it which has sort of really amazing effects and i think yeah i think that's fantastic and we'll have links to all of this on the show notes as well just in case anyone just sort of missed those things um and then just as we finish off our fire acronym is important to us here in terms of feedback inspiration resilience and empowerment when we talk about those four words and those sorts of things what springs to mind what's something which is um sort of speaks to you that you think would be important to share I don't know if it's going to be important to anyone else, but I, I would say my mum. <laughs> and I think, and I'm sure, I don't know if other people would say that to you, Mark, but I think often, the just to use that word genesis again, of ourselves comes from maybe not your mum, but but someone influential. There's somebody that has, that has created, has created that you know, I have a hugely inspirational person in my life, in, in my mother, who hasn't always given me the feedback that I've wanted. <laughs> and 
who really taught me that getting the feedback that I want is not necessarily the thing that's going to help me. So in terms of building resilience, I was just thinking about those words and how actually for her, that my relationship with her, I'm not saying it's that I've got, well, she's, you know, this wonderful mother that tells me everything's great. Not at all. Often it's been through some of the more challenging feedback that I have built the kind of resilience I have now. And she's produced two daughters with, you know, two incredibly empowered women who, in the context that we're in, you know, we grew up in Devon, in white Devon, two black girls with huge resilience, very empowered people. I don't think I could have, I wouldn't be here were it not for her. So, so I'm always looking for the human being behind those words. And I, and I would have to say it's my mother. Yeah, I love that. Well, Angie, thank you so much for chatting to us. It's been it's been fascinating and I think so enlightening in so many ways. And I certainly, you know, we talked about that empowerment and that inspiration, but I think certainly for me, I would have the next step should I be wanting to have those conversations or looking out or looking in, as, as we said, which is the most important thing. Um, so just tell people where they can find out more about you and, and how they can get involved in the work that you're doing. Mm. So my website is... Uh, www.angelabrown.co.uk and on my website you can find out about the coaching that I do the one-to-one coaching that I do I also run programs for women and for people of color and I also run a very popular diversity equity inclusion leadership program for schools and school leaders who are wanting to move forward with that work I love social media, so I'm often found on Twitter. So if anyone wants to join me over there on Twitter, I'm Angela underscore underscore Brown with an E, and it would be great to connect there. I'm on the other social places, but I would say that I'm most chatty on Twitter. So, yeah, it would be good to meet people there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again. And, um, yes, I look forward to to hearing more about um, some of the work that you're doing. Hopefully you get the chance to, to help some of the people that have been listening here today. So, yeah, thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having me, Mark. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.